Queen Lucia by E. F. Benson. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Thirteen. Spiritualism and all things pertaining to it swept over Rhizome like the amazing growth of some tropical forest, germinating and shooting out its surprising vegetation and rearing into huge fantastic shapes. In the centre of this wonderful jungle was a temple, so to speak, and that temple was the house of Mrs. Quantock. A strange providence was the origin of it all. Mrs. Quantock, a week before, had the toothache, and, being no longer in the fold of Christian science, found that it was no good at all to tell herself that it was a false claim. False claim it may be, but it was so plausible at once that it quite deceived her, and she went up to London to have its falsity demonstrated by a dentist. Since the collapse of yoga and the flight of the curry cook, she had embarked on no mystical adventure, and she starved for some new fad. Then, when her first visit to the dentist was over, the tooth required three treatments, and she went to a vegetarian restaurant to see if there was anything enlightening to be got out of that, she was delighted to find herself sitting at a very small table with a very communicative lady who ate cabbages in perfectly incredible quantities. She had a round, pale face like the moon behind the clouds, enormous eyebrows that almost met over her nose, and a strange low voice of husky tone, and a pronunciation quite as foreign as Signor Cortese's. She wore some very curious rings with large engraved amethysts and turquoises in them, and since in the first moments of their conversation she had volunteered the information that vegetarianism was the only possible diet for any who were cultivating their psychical powers, Mrs. Quantock asked her if these weird finger ornaments had any mystical signification. They had. One was Gnostic, one was Rosicrucian, and the other was Kabbalistic. It is easy to picture Mrs. Quantock's delight. Adventure had met her with smiling mouth and mysterious eyes. In the course of an animated conversation of half an hour, the lady explained that if Mrs. Quantock was, like her, a searcher after psychical truths, and cared to come to her flat at half-past four that afternoon, she would try to help her. She added with some little diffidence that the fee for a seance was a guinea, and as she left, took a card out of a case encrusted with glowing rubies, and gave it to her. That was the Princess Popovsky. Now here was a curious thing. For the last few evenings at Rhizome, Mrs. Quantock had been experimenting with a table, and found that it creaked and tilted and tapped in the most encouraging way when she and Robert laid their hands on it. Then something, whatever it was that moved the table, had indicated by raps that her name was Daisy and his Robert, as well as giving them other information which could not so easily be verified. Robert had grown quite excited about it, and was vexed that the seances were interrupted by his wife's expedition to London. But now how providential that was! She had walked straight from the dentist into the arms of Princess Popovsky. It was barely half-past four when Mrs. Quantock arrived at the Princess's flat, in a pleasant, quiet side street off Charing Cross Road. A small, dapper little gentleman received her, who explained that he was the Princess's secretary, and conducted her through several small rooms into the presence of the Sibyl. 
These rooms, so Mrs. Quantock thrillingly noticed, were dimly lit by oil lamps that stood in front of shrines, containing images of the great spiritual guides, from Moses down to Madame Blavatsky. A smell of incense hung about, there were vases of flowers on the tables, and strange caskets set with winking stones. In the last of these rooms the princess was seated, and for the moment Mrs. Quantock hardly recognised her, for she wore a blue robe which left her massive arms bare, and up them writhed serpent-shaped bracelets of many coils. She fixed her eyes on Mrs. Quantock as if she had never seen her before, and made no sign of recognition. "'The princess has been meditating,' said the secretary in a whisper. "'She'll come to herself presently.' For a moment meditation unpleasantly reminded Mrs. Quantock of the Guru, but nothing could have been less like that ill-starred curry-cook than this majestic creature. Eventually she gave a sigh, and came out of her meditation. "'Ah, it is my friend,' she said. "'Do you know that you have a purple halo?' This was very gratifying, especially when it was explained that only the most elect had purple halos, and soon other elect souls assembled for the sales. In the centre of the table was placed a musical box and a violin, and hardly had the circle been made and the lights turned down when the most extraordinary things began to happen. A perfect storm of rappings issued from the table, which began to rock violently, and presently there came peals of laughter in a high voice, and those who had been here before said that it was Pocky. He was a dear naughty boy, so Mrs. Quantock's neighbour explained to her, so full of fun, and when on earth had been a Hungarian violinist. Still invisible, Pocky wished them all much laughter and joy, and then suddenly said, Hello, hello, is a new friend, I like her. And Mrs. Quantock's neighbour, with a touch of envy in her voice, told her that Pocky clearly meant her. Then Pocky said that they had been having heavenly music on the other side that day, and that if the new friend would say please, he would play them some of it. So Mrs. Quantock, trembling with emotion, said, Please, Pocky, and instantly he began to play on the violin the spirit tune which he had just been playing on the other side. After that the violin clattered back onto the middle of the table again, and Pocky, blowing showers of kisses to them all, went away amid peals of happy laughter. Silence fell, and then a deep bass voice said, I am coming, Amadeo. And out of the middle of the table appeared a faint luminousness. It grew upwards and began to take form. Swathes of white muslin shaped themselves in the darkness, and there appeared a white face in among the topmost folds of the muslin, with a Roman nose and a melancholy expression. He was not gay like Pocky, but he was intensely impressive and spoke some lines in Italian when asked to repeat a piece of Dante. Mrs. Quantock knew they were Italian because she recognised Notte and Uno and Caro, familiar words on Lucia's lips. The sales came to an end, and Mrs. Quantock, having placed a guinea with the utmost alacrity in a sort of offertory plate, which the Princess Secretary negligently but prominently put down on a table in one of the other rooms, waited to arrange for another sales. But, most unfortunately, the princess was leaving town next day on a much-needed holiday, for she had been giving three seances a day for the last two months, and required rest. 
Yes, we're off tomorrow, the princess and I, said he, for a week at the Royal Hotel at Brinton. Pleasant, bracing air always sets her up. But after that she'll be back in town. Do you know that part of the country? Daisy could hardly believe her ears. Brinton, she said. I live close to Brinton. Her whole scheme flashed completely upon her, even as Athene sprang full-grown from the brain of Zeus. Do you think that she might be induced to spend a few days with me at Rhizome? she said. My husband and I are so much interested in psychical things. You would be our guest, too, I hope. If she rested for a few days at Brinton first, if she came on to me afterwards, and then if she was thoroughly rested, perhaps she would give us a seance or two, or I don't know. Mrs. Quantock felt a great diffidence in speaking of guineas in the same sentence with the princesses, and had to make another start. If she were thoroughly rested, she said, and if a little circle perhaps of four at the usual price would be worth her while, just after dinner, you know, and nothing else to do all day but rest, there are pretty drives and beautiful air, all very quiet, and I think, I may say, more comfortable than the hotel. It would be such a pleasure. Mrs. Quantock heard the clinking of bracelets from the room where the princess was still reposing, and there she stood in the door, looking unspeakably majestic, but very gracious. So Mrs. Quantock put her proposition before her, the secretary coming to the rescue on the subject of the usual fees, and when, two days afterwards, Mrs. Quantock returned to Rhizome, it was to get ready the spare room and Robert's room next to it for these thrilling visitors, whose first seance Georgie and Piggy had attended on the evening of the Italian debacle. The Quantocks had taken a high and magnificent line about the usual fees for the séances, an expensive line, but then Romanian oils had been extremely prosperous lately. No mention whatever of these fees was made to their guests, no offertory plate was put in a prominent position in the hall, there was no fumbling for change or the discreet pressure of coins into the secretary's hand. The entire cost was borne by Romanian oils. The princess and Mrs. Quantock, apparently, were old friends. They spoke to each other at dinner as dear friend, and the princess declared in the most gratifying way that they had been most intimate in a previous incarnation, without any allusion to the fact that in this incarnation they had met for the first time last week at a vegetarian restaurant. She was kind enough, it was left to be understood, to give a little seance after dinner at the house of her dear friend, and so, publicly, the question of money never came up. Now the princess was to stay three nights, and therefore, as soon as Mrs. Quantock had made sure of that, she proceeded to fill up each of the séances without asking Lucia to any of them. It was not that she had not fully forgiven her for her odious grabbing of the guru, for she had done that on the night of the Spanish quartet, it was rather that she meant to make sure that there would by no possibility be anything to forgive concerning her contact with regard to the princess. Lucia could not grab her and so call Daisy's powers of forgiveness into play again if she never came near her, and Daisy meant to take proper precautions that she should not come near her. Accordingly, Georgie and Piggy were asked to the first sales. If it did not go very well, it would not particularly matter with them. Olga and Mr. Shuttleworth were bidden to the second, and Lady Ambermere with Georgie again to the third, 
This, quite apart from the immense interest of psychic phenomena, was deadly work, for it would be bitter indeed to Lucia to know, as she most undoubtedly would, that Lady Ambermere, who had cut her so firmly, was dining twice and coming to a seance. Daisy, it must again be repeated, had quite forgiven Lucia about the guru, but Lucia must take the consequences of what she had done. It was after the first seance that the frenzy for spiritualism seized Rhizom. The princess, with great good nature, gave some further exhibitions of her psychical power in addition to the seances, and even as Georgie the next afternoon was receiving Lucia's cruel verdict about Debussy, the Sibyl was looking at the hands of Colonel Boucher and Mrs. Weston, and unerringly probing into their past, and lifting the corner of the veil, giving them both glimpses into the future. She knew that the two were engaged, for that she had learned from Mrs. Quantock in her morning's drive, and did not attempt to conceal the fact. But how could it be accounted for that, looking impressively from the one to the other, she said that a woman, no longer young, but tall and with fair hair, had crossed their lives, and had been connected with one of them for years past? It was impossible to describe Elizabeth more accurately than that, and Mrs. Weston, in high excitement, confessed that her maid, who had been with her for fifteen years, entirely corresponded with what the princess had seen in her hand. After that, it took only a moment's further scrutiny for the princess to discover that Elizabeth was going to be happy too. Then she found that there was a man connected with Elizabeth, and Colonel Boucher's hand, to which she transferred her gaze, trembled with delightful anticipation. She seemed to see a man there, she was not quite sure, but was there a man who perhaps had been known to him for a long time? There was! And then, by degrees, the affairs of Elizabeth and Atkinson were unerringly unravelled. It was a little wonder that the Colonel pushed Mrs. Weston's bath-chair with record speed to ye sign of ye daffodil, and by the greatest good luck obtained a copy of the Palmist's Manual. At another of these informal seances attended by Goosey and Mrs. Antrobus, even stranger things had happened, for the princess's hands, as they held a little preliminary conversation, began to tremble and twitch even more strongly than Colonel Boucher's, and Mrs. Quantock hastily supplied her with a pencil and a quantity of sheets of foolscap paper, for this trembling and twitching implied that Rescia, an ancient Egyptian priestess, was longing to use the princess's hand for automatic writing. After a few wild scrawls and plunges with the pencil, the princess, though she still continued to talk to them, covered sheet after sheet in large flowing handwriting. This, when it was finished and the princess sunk back in her chair, proved to be the most wonderful spiritual discourse, describing the happiness and harmony which pervaded the whole universe, and was only temporarily obscured by the mists of materiality. These mists were wholly withdrawn from the vision of those who had passed over. They lived in the midst of song and flowers and light and love. Towards the end there was a less intelligible passage about fire from the clouds. It was rendered completely intelligible the very next day when there was a thunderstorm, surely an unusual occurrence in November. If that had not happened, Mrs. Quantock's interpretation of it 
as referring to zeppelins, would have been found equally satisfactory. It was no wonder, after that, that Mrs. Antrobus, Piggy, and Goosey spent long evenings with pencils and paper, for the princess said that everybody had the gift of automatic writing if they would only take pains and patience to develop it. Everybody had his own particular guide, and it was the very next day that Piggy obtained a script clearly signed Annabel Nicostratus, and Jamiflegg followed very soon after for her mother and sister, and so there was no jealousy. But the crown and apex of these manifestations was undoubtedly the three regular séances which took place to the three select circles after dinner. Musical boxes resounded, violins gave forth ravishing airs, the sitters were touched by unseen fingers when everybody's hands were touching all around the table, and from the middle of it materializations swathed in muslin were built up. Pocky came, visible to the eye, and played spirit music, Amadeo, melancholy impressive, recited Dante, and Cardinal Newman, not visible to the eye but audible to the ear, joined in the singing Lead Kindly Light, which the secretary requested them to encourage him with, and blessed them profusely at the conclusion. Lady Ambermere was so much impressed and so nervous of driving home alone that she insisted on George's going back to the hall with her, and consigning her person to Pug and Miss Lyle and for the three days of the princess's visit there was practically no subject discussed at the parliaments on the green except the latest manifestations. Olga went to town for a crystal and Georgie for a planchette, and Rhizome temporarily became a spiritualistic republic, with the princess as priestess and Mrs. Quantock as president. Lucia, all this time, was almost insane with pique and jealousy, for she sat in vain waiting for an invitation to come to a séance, and would, long before the three days were over, have welcomed with enthusiasm a place at one of the inferior and informal exhibitions. Since she could not procure the princess for dinner, she asked Daisy to bring her to lunch or tea, or at any hour, day or night, which was convenient. She made Peppino hang about opposite Daisy's house with orders to drop his stick or let his hat blow off if he saw even the secretary coming out of the gate, so as possibly to enter into conversation with them, while she positively forced herself one morning into Daisy's hall and cried, Margarita, in silvery tones. On this occasion, Margarita came out of the drawing-room with a most determined expression on her face and shut the door carefully behind her. Dearest Lucia, she said, how nice to see you. What is it? I just popped in for a chat, said she. I haven't set eyes on you since the evening of the Spanish Quartet. No, so long ago as that, is it? Well, you must come in again sometime, very soon, won't you? The day after tomorrow I shall be much less busy. Promise to look in then. You have a visitor with you, have you not? asked Lucia desperately. Yes, two, indeed, dear friends of mine. But I'm afraid you would not like them. I know your opinion about anything connected with spiritualism. And, isn't it silly of us, we've been dabbling in that. Oh, but how interesting, said Lucia. I, I am always ready to learn and alter my opinions if I'm wrong. Mrs. Quantock did not move from in front of the drawing-room door. Yes, she said. Then we will have a great talk about it when you come to see me the day after tomorrow. But I know I shall find you hard to convince. 
She kissed the tips of her fingers in a manner so hopelessly final that there was nothing to do but go away. Then, with poor generalship, Lucia altered her tactics, and went up to the village green where Piggy was telling Georgie about the script signed Annabel. This was repeated again for Lucia's benefit. Wasn't it too lovely, said Piggy, so Annabel's my guide, and she writes a hand quite unlike mine. Lucia gave a little scream and put her finger to her ears. Gracious me, she said, what has come over Rhizome? Wherever I go, I hear nothing but talk of seances and spirits and automatic writing. Such a pack of nonsense, my dear Piggy. I wonder at a sensible girl like you. Mrs. Weston, propelled by the Colonel, whirled up in her bath chair. The palmist's manual is too wonderful, she said, and Jacob and I sat up over it till I don't know what hour. There's a break in his line of life, just at the right place when he was so ill in Egypt, which is most remarkable. And when Tommy Luton brought round my bath chair this morning, I had it at the garden door, because the gravel's just laid at my front door, and the wheels sink so far into it. Tommy, I said, let me look at your hand a moment. And there, on his line of fate, was the little cross that means bereavement. It came just right, didn't it, Jacob, when he was thirteen, for he's fourteen this year, and Mrs. Luton died just a year ago. Of course I didn't tell Tommy that, for I only told him to wash his hands, but it was most curious. And has your planchette come yet, Mr. Georgie? I shall be most anxious to know what it writes, so if you've got an evening free any night soon, just come round for a bit of dinner, and we'll make an evening of it, with table-turning and planchette and palmistry. Now tell me all about the seance the first night. I wish I could have been present at a real seance, but of course Mrs. Quantock can't find room for everybody, and I'm sure it was most kind of her to let the Colonel and me come in yesterday afternoon. We were thrilled with it, and who knows but that the Princess didn't write the Palmer's Manual, for on the title page it says by P, and that might be Popovsky as easily as not, or perhaps Princess. This allusion to there not being room for everybody was agony to Lucia. She laughed in her most silvery manner. Or perhaps Peppino, she said. I must ask Mio Caro if he wrote it. Or does it stand for Pilson? Georgino, are you the author of the Palmist Manual? Echo, I believe it was you. This was not quite wise, for no one detested irony more than Mrs. Weston, or was sharper to detect it. Lucia should never have been ironical just then, nor, indeed, have dropped into Italian. No, she said, I'm sure it was neither Il Signor Peppino nor Il Signor Pilson who wrote it. I believe it was the Principessa, so echo. And did we not have a delicious evening at Miss Bracely's the other night? Such lovely singing, and so interesting to learn that Signor Cortese made it all up and those lovely words, for though I didn't understand much of them, they sounded so exquisite, and fancy Miss Bracely talking Italian so beautifully, when we none of us knew she talked it at all. Mrs. Weston's amiable face was crimson with suppressed emotion, of which these few words were only the most insignificant leakage, and a very awkward pause succeeded, which was luckily broken by everybody beginning to talk again very fast and brightly. Then Mrs. Weston's chair scudded away, Piggy skipped away to the stocks where Goosey was sitting with a large sheet of foolscap in case her hand twitched for automatic script, and Lucia, 
turned to Georgie, who alone was left. Poor Daisy, she said, I dropped in just now, and really I found her very odd and strange. What with her crazes for Christian science and uric acid and gurus and mediums, one wonders if she is quite sane. So sad, I should be dreadfully sorry if she had some mental collapse. That sort of thing is always so painful. But I know of a first-rate place for rescuers. I think it would be wise if I just casually dropped the name of it to Mr. Robert in case. And this last craze seems so terribly infectious. Fancy Mrs. Weston dabbling in palmistry. It is too comical. But I hope I did not hurt her feelings by suggesting that Peppino or you wrote the manual. It is dangerous to make little jokes to poor Mrs. Weston. Georgie quite agreed with that, but did not think it necessary to say in what sense he agreed with it. Every day now Lucia was pouring floods of light on a quite new side of her character, which had been undeveloped, like the print from some photographic plate lying in the dark so long as she was undisputed mistress of Rhizome. But so it struck him now, since the advent of Olga, she had taken up a critical, ironical standpoint which previously she had reserved for Londoners. At every turn she had to criticise and condemn, where once she would only have praised. So few months ago there had been that marvellous Hightum garden party, when Olga had sung long after Lady Ambermere had gone away. That was her garden party, the splendour and success of it had been hers, and no one had been allowed to forget that until Olga came back again. But the moment that happened, and Olga began to sing on her own account, which, after all, so Georgie thought she had a perfect right to do, the whole aspect of affairs was changed. She romped, and Rhizom did not like romps. She sang in church, and that was theatrical. She gave a party with the Spanish quartet, and Brinton was publicly credited with the performance. Then had come Mrs. Quantock and her princess, and, lo, it would be kind to remember the name of an establishment for rest cures, in the hope of saving poor Daisy's sanity. Again, Colonel Boucher and Mrs. Weston were intending to get married, and consulted a palmist's manual, so they too helped to develop, as with acid, the print that had lain so long in the dark. Poor thing, said Lucia, it is dreadful to have no sense of humour. And I'm sure I hope that Colonel Boucher will thoroughly understand that she has none, before he speaks the fatal words. But then he has none either, and I have often noticed that two people without any sense of humour find each other most witty and amusing. A sense of humour, I expect, is not a very common gift. Miss Bracely has none at all, for I do not call romping humour. As for poor Daisy, what can rival her solemnity in sitting night after night round a table with someone who may or may not be a Russian princess? Russia, of course, is a very large place, and one does not know how many princesses there may be there. And thrilling over a pot of luminous paint and a false nose and calling it Amadeo the friend of Dante. This was too much for Georgie. But you asked Mrs. Quantock and the Princess to dine with you, he said, and hoped there would be a seance afterwards. You wouldn't have done that if you thought it was only a false nose and a pot of luminous paint. I may have been impulsive, said Lucia, speaking very rapidly. I dare say I'm impulsive, and if my impulses lie in the direction of extending such poor hospitality as I can offer to my friends and their friends, I am not ashamed of them. Far otherwise. 
But when I see and observe the awful effect of this so-called spiritualism on people whom I should have thought sensible and well-balanced, I do not include poor dear Daisy among them, then I am only thankful that my impulses did not happen to lead me into countenancing such piffle as your sister so truly observed about poor Daisy's guru. They had come opposite George's house, and suddenly his drawing-room window was thrown up. Olga's head looked out. "'Don't have a fit, Georgie, to find me here,' she said. "'Good morning, Mrs. Lucas. You were behind the mulberry, and I didn't see you. But something's happened to my kitchen range, and I can't have lunch at home. Do give me some. I've brought my crystal, and we'll gaze and gaze. I can see nothing at present except my own nose and the window. Are you psychical, Mrs. Lucas?' This was the last straw. All Lucia's grievances had been flocking together like swallows for their flight, and to crown all came this open annexation of Georgie. There was Olga sitting in his window, all unasked, and demanding lunch, with her silly ridiculous crystal in her hand, wondering if Lucia was psychical. Her silvery laugh was a little shrill. It started a full tone above its normal pitch. No, dear Miss Bracely, she said, I am afraid I am much too commonplace and matter-of-fact to care about such things. It is a great loss, I know, and deprives me of the pleasant society of Russian princesses, but we are all made differently. That is very lucky. I must get home, Georgie. It certainly seemed very lucky that everyone was not precisely like Lucia at that moment, or there would have been quarrelling. She walked quickly off, and Georgie entered his house. Lucia really had been remarkably rude, and if allusion was made to it, he was ready to confess that she seemed a little worried. Friendship would allow that, and candour demanded it, but no allusion of any sort was made. There was a certain flush on Olga's face, and she explained that she had been sitting over the fire. The princess visit came to an end next day, and all the world knew that she was going back to London by the 11 a.m. express. Lady Ambermere was quite aware of it, and drove in with Pug and Miss Lyle, meaning to give her a lift to the station, leaving Mrs. Quantock, if she wanted to see her guest off, to follow with the princess luggage in the fly, which, no doubt, had been ordered. But Daisy had no intention of permitting this sort of thing, and drove calmly away with her dear friend in George's motor leaving the baffled Lady Ambermere to follow or not, as she liked. She did like, though not much, and found herself on the platform among a perfect crowd of Rhizomites who had strolled down to the station on this lovely morning to see if parcels had come. Lady Ambermere took very little notice of them, but managed that Pug should give his paw to the Princess as she took her seat, and waved her hand to Mrs. Quantock's dear friend as the train slid out of the station. The late lord had some Russian relation, she said majestically. How did you get to know her? I met her at Potsdam, was on the tip of Mrs. Quantock's tongue, but she was afraid that Lady Ambermere might not understand and ask her when she had been to Potsdam. It was grievous work making jokes for Lady Ambermere. The train sped on to London, and the princess opened the envelope which her hostess had discreetly put in her hand and found that that was all right. Her hostess had also provided her with an admirable lunch, which her secretary took out of a Gladstone bag. When that was finished, she wanted her cigarettes, 
and as she looked for these, and even after she had found them, she continued to search for something else. There was the musical box there, and some curious pieces of elastic, and the violin was in its case, and there was a white mask, but still she continued to search. About the same time as she gave up the search, Mrs. Quantock wandered upstairs to the princess's room. A less highly vitalised nature than hers would have been in a stupor of content, but she was more in a frenzy of content than in a stupor. How fine that frenzy was may be judged from the fact that perhaps the smallest ingredient in it was her utter defeat of Lucia. She cared comparatively little for that glorious achievement, and she was not sure that when the princess came back again, as she had arranged to do on her next holiday, she would not ask Lucia to come to a séance. Indeed, she had little but pity for the vanquished. So great were the spoils. Never had Rysam risen to such a pitch of enthusiasm, and with good cause had it done so now. For of all the wonderful and exciting things that had ever happened there, these séances were the most delirious. And better even than the excitement of Rysam was the cause of its excitement, for spiritualism and the truth of inexplicable psychic phenomena had flashed upon them all. Tableau, romps, yoga, the Moonlight Sonata, Shakespeare, Christian Science, Olga herself, uric acid, Elizabethan furniture, the engagement of Colonel Boucher and Mrs. Weston, all these tremendous topics had paled like fire in the sunlight before the revelation that had now dawned. By practice and patience, by zealous concentration on crystals and palms, by the waiting for automatic script to develop, you attained to the highest mysteries, and could evoke Cardinal Newman or Pocky. There was the bed in which the Sibyl had slept, there was the fresh vase of flowers, difficult to procure in November but still obtainable, which she loved to have standing near her. There was the chest of drawers in which she had put her clothes, and Mrs. Quantock pulled them open one by one, finding fresh emanations and vibrations everywhere. The lowest one stuck a little, and she had to use force to it. The smile was struck from her face as it flew open. Inside it were billows and billows of the finest possible muslin. Fold after fold of it she drew out, and with it there came a pair of false eyebrows. She recognised them at once as being Amadeo's. The muslin belonged to Pocky as well. She needed but a moment's concentrated thought, and in swift succession rejected two courses of action that suggested themselves. The first was to use the muslin herself. It would make summer garments for years. The chief reason against that was that she was a little old for muslin. The second course was to send the whole paraphernalia back to her dear friend, with or without a comment. But that would be tantamount to a direct accusation of fraud. Never any more, if she did that, could she dispense her dear friend to rise on like an expensive drug. She would not so utterly burn her boats. There remained only one other judicious course of action, and she got to work. It had been a cold morning, clear and frosty, and she had caused a good fire to be lit in the princess's bedroom for her to dress by. It still prospered in the grate, and Mrs. Quantock, having shut the door and locked it, put on to it the false eyebrows which, as they turned to ash, flew up the chimney. Then she fed it with muslin, yards and yards of muslin she poured onto it. Never had there been so much muslin, nor that so exquisitely fine. 
It went to her heart to burn it, but there was no time for minor considerations. Every atom of that evidence must be purged by fire. The princess would certainly not write and say that she had left some eyebrows and a hundred yards of muslin behind her, for, knowing what she did, it would be to her interests as well as Mrs. Quantock's that those properties should vanish, as if they never had been. Up the chimney in sheets of flame went this delightful fabric. Sometimes it roared there as if it had set the chimney on fire, and she had to pause, shielding her scorched face, until the hollow rumbling had died down. But at last the holocaust was over, and she unlocked the door again. No one knew but she, and no one should ever know. The guru had turned out to be a curry cook, but no intruding Hermy had been here this time. As long as crystals fascinated and automatic writing flourished, the secret of the muslin and the eyebrows should repose in one bosom alone. Rhizom had been electrified by spiritualism, and, even now, the seances had been cheap at the price. And, in spite of this discovery, she felt by no means sure that she would not ask the princess to come again and minister to their spiritual needs. She had hardly got downstairs when Robert came in from the green where he had been recounting the experience of the last seance. Looked as if there was a chimney on fire, he said. I wish it was the kitchen chimney, then perhaps the beef mightn't be so raw as it was yesterday. Thus is comedy intertwined with tragedy. End of chapter